And let's take a look. David and Goliath, right? You see it on the screen there? Um, here's the thing with David and Goliath. Everybody has heard of the story. Everybody's heard of the story. Heard of the story of the little boy. Heard of the big giant. Heard of the rock. Heard the whole deal. This morning, we're going to take a little bit of a different take on it. Um, so don't quite, th- don't quite check out yet. It's going to be tempting to check out. It's David and Goliath. I mean, you know, this, it's already happened, like, and it happened a few thousand years ago. The outcome already, you know, the players, you know. Um, but I think that there are some nuggets that are tucked away in the story that might be encouraging to you because they're not obvious and not implicitly stated as you read through the story. All right? And so this morning, we're going to take out just this one thing I want you just to think about and focus on. And it's this one thing. It is this. The lesson of the Philistines. Everybody say, the lesson of the Philistines. Yeah, they're a pretty major player in the story with David and Goliath. And there's a very significant lesson that lies within the Philistines. All right? So I want to make sure that we talk about that. And to be, we're just going to do verses 1 through 11. We're going to take a look at it. And hopefully it helps to open up your eyes a little bit. And I'm going to give you a clue as to where we're going. I don't know how many basketball or sports fans we have in here. But me personally growing up, I was a huge fan of the Chicago Bulls. Michael Jordan. It's just like kids ask me now, like, you know, who are you a basketball fan of? I'm like... I grew up with Michael Jordan, like that was my team. You can't even compare it to what's happening now. It's just, I like some stuff. But Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and most people know Michael Jordan and the Bulls because they won a lot and they did really well. And Michael Jordan is the GOAT, greatest player of all time. But few people know that being a true Chicago Bulls fan in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s to late 90s, is that the success of the Chicago Bulls and how well they did It never happened until they got past one very difficult challenge and roadblock. In other words, the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan never would have been what the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan are. Never would have happened. And it's because of one very problematic team. The very problematic team that would shut them down every year. I remember watching. 9, 10, 11 years old, and just watch them be like, oh, they're in the playoffs. They're facing this team again. They, they just got to get past them. And then once they do, like, they got this. And then year after year, it's like, oh, they can't beat these guys. They can't beat these guys. Year after year, just depressed. You know, it gets like a game seven and be like, oh, I think they got it. They got it this time. And then boom, shot down. Next year, it's like, oh, game seven. They got it. They got it. Oh, another depressing game. And then they go walking home. And the team, right, the challenge that was before them was the Detroit Pistons. They could not get past them. They were, they were stronger. They were more talented. They were grittier. And Michael Jordan, he's Michael Jordan. He had skills. You know, he's obviously very good, very talented, won a lot of games. But up until that point, there's certain areas within his life as an athlete that He just couldn't keep the same in order to move on. He needed to make changes. Even him, the GOAT, Michael Jordan, he had to. And so then, after the Detroit Pistons, what he did, he got into the weight room. 
He'd get into weight room working hard. He met with his uh, head coach studying film, got even more intense, even more intense, changed a lot of things. And then sure enough, they come along and they finally beat the Pistons. And not only did they beat the Pistons, they started beating everybody. I mean, it was just over after that. Winning championships, killing everybody, six world championships. You got Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, all these guys. But honestly, the story of the dominance, everybody say dominance. dominance. And the victory, everybody say victory. The story of the dominance and the victory never would have happened if you don't have the Detroit Pistons. So honestly, if you're Michael Jordan, you better like call up Isaiah Thomas, Bill Lambier, and call up these guys and be like, hey, thank you so much. I never would have been, we never would have experienced without you guys. And that's the truth of it. It's the truth of it. And I want to tell you that there's some very significant similarities when it comes to the Christian life. To think that we can just show up, right, and be Christians and get where God wants us to be in our own strength is craziness, right? But somehow we get blown away when we have trials, difficulties, and challenges come into our life. It's like, oh, what are these doing here? I was following Jesus and loving the Lord and on the right track and staying in my word. Yeah, you are. And there's going to be some pistons that are going to come along and you've got to make some adjustments to have some breakthrough and experience some more dominance and victory. It's intentionally set up like that. So that's very much at the heart of David and Goliath and with the lesson of the Philistines. We're going to talk about the Philistines. Everybody say Philistines. Philistines. Yeah. If you, read, if you read the Bible at all, spend any time in it, especially in the Old Testament, this group of people comes up a lot. They're just, they're around a lot. And they're very significant. So I want to read this passage, and I want to show you something. We're going to finish up. First Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces of, uh, for war, and they assembled at Soka and Judah. They pitched camp at Ephesus, Damnum, so all these places, blah, blah, blah. Verse 2. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So um, the valley of Elah, that's kind of like, you know when you go to like Bethlehem, Connecticut, you drive through the hills up there, Litchfield Hills? It's kind of like that. They didn't have any true mountains. Um, but they had like these huge rolling hills. And so if you can picture these rolling hills, kind of like in Litchfield there, and you just have thousands of people on one hill, all Philistines, then you got thousands of Israelites on the other, and then you got a valley in between. And so they're just like camped, just on these hills, kind of just looking at each other. And the Philistines, they are significant because they actually, if you look, think about present-day Israel, you can Google it later and look at your phone or even do it now if you want. But when you think of, talk about present-day Israel, it borders on the Mediterranean Sea, the eastern side. And most people have heard of the Gaza Strip, right? The Gaza Strip. That Gaza Strip is like the Philistine area, but, that Gaza, but the Philistines actually not only had the modern-day Gaza Strip, it also went up to almost Tel Aviv. So they had almost the entire east coast. So they were significant, and they were strong, and they were powerful. And they're known for being good warriors. So you got them on the hill, you got the Israelites on the hill, and you got this valley in between. Verse 4 A champion named Goliath, who is from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall, 
He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. So you have this literal giant, nine, nine and a half feet tall. I think within recent memory, the tallest guy that we have on record is this English guy, Edward Waslow. Look him up later. It's like eight, eight and a half feet tall, big, tall guys, like early 1900s around there. I haven't seen a nine-footer in a really long time, um, which is kind of interesting because we have you know, the NBA and all these other things. They have all these tall people. We haven't seen a nine, nine and a half footer in a long time. And so you have this giant, literal giant, and it says that he's wearing armor, and it's 100 to 150 pounds, just in armor. And it's just, it's light, light work for him. It's just easy. It's like his Under Armour shirt, you know? It's just, it's easy for him. And then he's got this super heavy 50 to 60 pound spear, and he's just, man, he's just loaded with stuff. Verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy, or that word is taunt, or tease, or humiliate. This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. So you got this set up, thousands of people on a hill. you got this valley. This giant walks in the valley. He's got his armor bearer in front of him, kind of like his little, I don't know, minion guy. He probably looked like a minion, so big compared to him. In front of him. And uh, he he just comes out there and he just talks trash. Like, in a bad way. So he's swearing and cursing the God of Israel, the Israelites themselves, that, listen, I am who I am. Look at me. You guys are like of Saul, Israel. You can't do anything. And so um, they had decided to really set up this situation where, hey, listen, let's not have thousands of people come together and just wage war and kill each other. Let's just have a situation where, hey, best man wins. And uh, our best man versus your best man. Winner uh, takes the spoil. Interesting situation. Kind of crazy, which we're going to talk more about in a minute. Here's a question I want to pose to you as you look at it. Um, why did God allow, why did God allow a giant to come and humiliate, talk trash, taunt, and very much disrupt his chosen people, the Israelites. Why would God let a giant, not even just a giant, the entire Philistine nation was problematic, inherently problematic for the Israelites. And if you read through the Old Testament, they were always there as a difficult people group that they're always waging war with. Always difficult. And the Israelites kind of made it more difficult because they started like intermarrying with them, and then that really made things complicated. Because they were known for being anti-Jehovah God, doing their own thing. So why would God allow this people group, and not only this people group stick around, they were powerful, not only were they powerful, 
Currently, God is allowing this giant to come in and truly intimidate. Why would God allow that? Yeah, there's going to be lots of answers, right? Test their faith. What are you saying? Test how strong they are spiritually. Right, we're going to come up with lots of answers. And if you think about it more and you're to kind of brainstorm, you're going to come up with some things. And that's good. That's the way we should read the Bible. It should be interactive like that. You're like, why is God letting this happen right now? Like, what? those are his people? Why would God allow somebody to step on the scene and do nothing but mock God himself? Why is God allowing that? Why would he do that? It's good to ask that question when you read the Bible. And then it's good to put yourself there and try and answer it. Well, okay, test spiritually to see what they're going to do, you know, to see. Here's, what's even, here's what helps even more. Once you develop those thoughts of those answers, then you say, okay, that, that's what I think. So now let me see, did God ever say anything about this people group? Remember I said the lesson of the Philistines? There's a lesson within them just being there, just their presence. Even being neighbors. They were neighbors to Israel. They were right next to them. So you're like, you couldn't get away. So the really question is, well, then what's God's deal with the Philistines? Like, why? Why? And the answer is, I'm glad that you asked. Looking at two passages. Put your finger um, in both of them. Joshua, go to the left in your Bible. Go to Joshua. Put your finger in chapter 13. And then... Right after Joshua is a book called Judges, and I want you to put your finger in chapter 2. All right? So you're in Joshua 13. Joshua 13. Judges 2. Okay? And again, what we're trying to answer, not with just our own opinion, but with what God himself has already said. Well, don't you want to have an answer that God has already said? Like, that's the idea, right? When we have a problem in life, like, we want to respond with an answer from heaven, not just our best opinion, right? So again, why would God allow the giant and the Philistine to taunt, insult, and mock God's holy people? Why would he allow that? So Joshua 13, God's going to give us the answer out of Joshua 13 and Judges chapter 2. Joshua 13, it says, When Joshua was old and well advanced in years, the Lord said to him, You are very old and there are still very large areas of land to be taken over. Joshua is the leader after Moses, taking over everything that God has an inheritance for them. God would literally give it to Joshua. He'd say, listen, I'm giving this to you, but you've got to still show up and fight. How many people know there's a message right then and there? God gives us victory and dominance, but you still got to show up and fight. And God practically shows that through the life of Joshua. Great book to read. You should read it sometime. So we're at the end of Joshua's life, and this is what God's saying to him. Uh, There are still large areas to be taken over. Verse 2. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines. Hey, that looks familiar, right? Gershurites. Uh, the Canaanites, the Gebulites, the Mosquito Bites, right, all that stuff, okay? It's all there. It's all there. So he says that he's going to leave them all, but it doesn't tell us why. 
God says he's going to leave it. Say, hey, listen, I'm not, I'm just not. You're just not getting them. So that's why we still have more of the Bible, right, to help us. So you go to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 21. Here's where we pick up. This is God talking. Everybody should be there, right? Chapter 2, verse 21 says this. I will no longer, this is God himself talking, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to, everybody say test. Everybody say test. Yeah. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Says the five rulers of the Philistines, the Canaanites, the mosquito bites, blah, blah, blah. Verse 4. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. So right then and there, we get a sneak peek, right? Not our own opinion, but from God's word, from his mouth himself. Listen, I'm not driving them out. I'm going to keep them there. I'm going to keep them there. I know they're not going to follow me. I know they won't fully submit to me. But God in his great wisdom and infinite power says, you know what? I'm still going to use it for my glory. I'm going to use them to make you better. He says, listen, this generation that grew up under Joshua and Moses that went in and they would fight and take land, man, they died off. They, they, don't, they don't know how to fight. You know what that means? It's kind of like us in America. Like, we do a lot of whining and complaining and arguing. It's like, all the fighters that lived here in New England, these patriots that, like, stood up, and they're like, no, like, no. Like, we are fighting for what we're going to do and what we're going after. It's like a region known as fighters. There's not a whole lot of fighters around here anymore. And so God said, hey, listen, to deal with that problem, I'm going to let these guys stay close by. And they're going to be very difficult to deal with. And your people even intermarry with them and kind of be drawn into their false idol worship. But God says, you know what? I want them there. They need to learn how to engage in battle. And then God says this, which we just read, my people, right, they will not experience a victory and a dominance over them unless they rely on me and who I am. That's basically what God tells them. I'm doing it to test them, to test them, to make sure that what they are worshiping and what they are saying actually matches up with what they actually believe. Read to you a very interesting point and quote that I'm going to steal. Faith is, not, it, faith is tested through trials, not produced by them. Faith is tested through trials, not produced by them. Trials don't produce faith in and of itself. You can go through some trial, some difficulty, some situation. 
We're not even getting to Goliath. You see that, right? We're not even unpacking that. That's part two next time. It's worthwhile to look at what's going on here with the Philistines and what this implies and what it means for us. So if we go through trials, it doesn't just produce a faith. That can produce other things. Two, two of the top ones I put down, bitterness and discouragement. People will go through trials and difficulties of the situation. They will complain. They will be bitter and they will discourage and they will sit there and they will tell everybody about it and it will run through their minds. And a lot of times they just go and run to things that aren't helpful, aren't worthwhile. And they're just stuck on, they just can't get past a place of, I just, I'm just discouraged, I just don't understand, I just, <sighs> you've been there, I've been there. They're just like, <sighs> it's just not happening the way it should be happening. And if they would just, <sighs> right, faith the idea, I read this other quote this week. From, I think it was from Spurgeon. Let me see if I wrote it down. I think that I did. Did I write it down? I should have. I did. Our faith is as vital to salvation as the heart is vital to the body. Our faith is as vital to salvation as the heart is vital to the body. So like as you think about, try not, think about your body operating without your heart. How good does that work? Yeah, not real good, right? So just like our salvation that we have inherited through Jesus Christ in this life of faith we're called to live, we can't do it without faith. It, it doesn't happen. It's like the body without the heart. So if we're operating our lives, most of our control, not really surrendered, just for the most part on autopilot, or just kind of, you know, what Jesus sprinkled in there. That's a salvation life that's just absent of the heart that needs to be in it. Doesn't make any sense. And the intention of testing and trials is never so God can say, hey, listen, I knew you were going to fail. I knew you could never do it anyways. See, look, I put this in your life and you fold it up just like I knew you would. See, most of us understand like testing and trials like that because we've experienced that in life. People just can't wait until they see us fail. They can't wait to see to see you make a bad mistake or a bad judgment call. Like, ah, see, I knew you weren't really changed. That really wasn't it. I knew you were full of nonsense and the whole thing was just. And what God is trying to build up, when he says test, he's trying to say, hey, listen, I already know where your faith level is at. It's not like it's like a riddle to God. What do they really think about me? It's not a riddle for him. He already knows. The problem is we are the ones with the issue where we can't see straight. Very often we think way too much that we think we're a lot further along than what we really are because we get very impressed with our own efforts. Or we give ourselves and the work of the Holy Spirit almost no credit of what he's doing in our life. And there's this constant battle for us to be on the same page for what is actually happening in our lives according to God himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? And honestly, to only get to the truth of what's happening in Jared's life or in Rob's life or in Eric's life, the truth of it. Like, where's their faith at, really? Because depending upon who you talk to, it depends how well they talk about it. Then it's like, oh, all right. And some people can talk a real good game, right? And got nothing. And some people really aren't really good talkers. 
But man, they know how to live it and surrender and encounter Jesus and do it. And so the only way to get to the truth of the situation is the Lord allows, let me say allow. He allows some Philistine action, some Goliath people, some Goliath situations in our lives. And God's saying, I know, I'm fully aware of who they are, what the situation is, I got it. The issue is, what is your faith doing right now? That's really the issue. That's the point of the trial, of the difficulty, of the challenge. It's for us to get and understand and see and be like, wow, all right. I, I see, I can now see where my faith level is at because I am getting probed and pricked and taunted and harassed and it's challenging and I don't know. That's the point. And the only way that typically we get there is God allows some of that stuff in our lives. So God himself, he's allowing these Philistines, he's allowing Goliath. He's saying, listen, they need this. They need this. Because here's their issue. Here's their issue, which we led in verse 11. Their issue was, verse 11, you don't have to turn there. I'll I'll just get it for you. Verse 11 says this, they were dismayed and they were terrified. Here's their issue. They saw him. Man, I ain't dealing with that. This dude, like, no. No, thanks. Dude, is how tall? No, no, no. An interesting thing is, in some manuscripts, it's suggested by some Bible scholars, and I don't have facts for it, so I'm using like vague language. It's suggested that Goliath himself personally called outside and said, hey, you saw, get your skinny butt out here and let's see what happens. Like, in a very insulting and crazy way, if that's true, that just adds another dimension to the story. The problem is their faith. Oh, we believe in God. We're God's chosen people. We're Israelites. And they show up on the scene where the rubber hits the road and it's being tested and challenged. And they're like, I don't want to show up to fight, to be honest with you. I'll stay on this hill. Somebody else go handle that guy. So you see how problematic it is, right? There's a need in our lives for God to test us and allow challenging things to come in our life. Do you know that there's a need for that? We have to come to the realization of that. Because then when it happens, it's not like we're just freaking out going crazy. It's like, well, I need this in my life. There is a good, good father behind all of it, and he's very trustworthy. Because the interesting thing is, for the Israelites, it's guaranteed victory. Everybody say guaranteed. Guaranteed victory and dominance if they're able to have a greater faith in the God whom they'd say they worship, if that is able to trump and have dominance in their situation. If they're able to keep him as supreme influence, victory and dominance is theirs. It's their inheritance. Because how many people know that Goliath, I remember growing up and playing like, just playing games and sports all the time with all my friends and stuff and 
we're always taunting and talking trash, you know, not like, not like Goliath trash talk, but just like fun trash talk. I still do it now with my kids. And we do stuff all the time. And it's amazing actually how good my kids are at trash talk. And so if they do it to you, don't be offended. They just, it's in our home. And, um, and I remember growing up, there was one of my friends, you know, he did, this was his phrase. He goes, he goes, I got mental lock, mental lock. He would just do that every time, like we'd be doing stuff. He's like, he'd point to his head, he's like, mental lock. I'm like, what the heck? What he was saying is like, say we'd be doing some sort of thing, like we're playing one-on-one, or we're like shooting best out of ten, or doing whatever. With this particular person, if he felt like it was happening, which a lot of times it did happen to a lot of my uh, friends, just his noise and his chatter and his past success would just rattle you and you just, you can't like focus. You just can't like do what you know you could really do because of his nonsensical noise coming out of his mouth consistently. You understand what I'm saying? And you might know people like this and maybe you are that person. But Goliath was able to do that. He intimidated him right from jump just with the way he looked and with his language. I look this way and you cannot do anything about it. So don't even bother showing up. Do you understand that that's like a a very, hasn't changed in thousands of years, a tactic from the enemy that he uses? He would just blindside you, make make you think something is so overwhelming and so discouraging. He says, you know what? He plants, he's able to like influence the Christian and the believer and say, you know what? You better not even engage in that. You have lost before you've even started. And the enemy is still extremely successful on that front. What are we doing? Like, what are we doing? We are never called to that. That is nowhere near our inheritance. And some people just get scared off just by the appearance and by the language and by the way a situation looks. Just like them. Mental lock. We're better than that. Say you're better than that. Better than that. I'm going to finish up here with James. This is it, because I know we got to roll. Um, there's this idea through the New Testament. This isn't just some Old Testament thing. I know some people might think that or maybe be tempted to think that. It's not just like an Old Testament principle where like God just tests his people in the Old Testament. And then when Jesus showed up, there is no more testing. There is no more, I'm going to allow this in your life to see like where your faith lives at and, and what's going on. It wasn't just Old Testament. I love how uh, in Romans 16, you have to turn there, it talks about uh, this fellow person, Apelles. They were tested and improved in Christ. In 1 Peter, it talks about how our faith, 1 Peter 1.7, it talks about our faith, which is tested. Because it's worth more than riches in Christ Jesus. That's how God is in relationship with us. He allows things um, in our life to come and test our faith level to see where we're at. Because from God's perspective, that's the most valuable thing that we possess in relationship with him, is our faith. And so it's not just Old Testament, it's also New Testament. And in James, he gets a little more detailed about it. And I'm sure you've probably heard some of it before. 
We're in James chapter 1, if you want to turn there. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. When faith is involved with the trial, you become a lot more patient. You can tell like how you're handling a situation when it's difficult and complicated based on how patient you're really being in the middle of it. If you're just looking to rush in to make a move and so it gets fixed really quick, it's evident that in our flesh we want it to be over soon, and that's true. But our faith should rise up. And many often, many often, often, oftentimes it does rise up when we're doing well and walking closely with the Lord and it says, no, 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 I do want it to get fixed, but God has a good work that he's doing here. So I want to allow him to have that play out. And so I will thank him now for what he's doing. And I'll say, Lord, where do you need me to be more faithful as you're doing this? Right? You understand this. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. So you got these Philistines, right? Lesson of the Philistines is God allows allows. He says, hey, listen, that's fine. I will use whatever it is. I'll use whatever it is to help develop and grow and mature the faith that is needed for my daughter or for my son. I'll totally allow that. And our big guard, what we need to do, like I thought, you know, when I read the passage, I'm like, listen, you got one big giant, you got a thousand Israelites, just bum rush the dude and take him out. It's not rocket science, right? Why wouldn't they do that? Well, I think it's kind of evident from the passage, like they're just, they're just afraid. They are afraid. So they don't even want to enter into that. And much of the battle, right, for us is that issue of fear. That issue of fear. Because we don't need to live there. We don't need to stay there. God is going to bring, it's not if, like he's going to bring tests and trials into our lives. Because we need it. Everybody say, because I need it. it. And we'll see how much you believe that as life progresses, right? We'll see how much you believe it. Because when that thing hits and when something arises, there could be just this bitterness and discouragement and freaking out and clamming up and wearing it all over it. And I'm not saying there's not time for frustrations. There absolutely is. But then there's another side that at some point picks up and it says, whoa, 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 all right. Okay, I see what's playing out here. I know what the calling is on my life here. I know where I got to stand. I know what's important. And I know who's in control. So the lesson of the Philistines. God is going to let and allow some things in because I need it, but it's not hopeless because victory and dominance is guaranteed and our Savior. 
because I think it's pretty awesome and pretty interesting that we have this battle between two people where one person is going to guarantee victory for both sides. Who's one person that guaranteed victory for you and I? It's the name that always works in church. Yeah, Jesus. Right? Wasn't there one battle over sin, over death? One battle over sin, over death. Did you fight it? I didn't fight it. And if I tried to fight it, I would have lost. Like, you didn't fight it. I didn't fight it. We weren't even, like, eligible to fight, even if we could. Because we weren't perfect. We didn't have a pure, spotless blood. We didn't have it. But there is one person who did engage and who did fight, and then everybody else gets to benefit. So even though it's kind of a strange battle of like this huge Goliath just calling out one-on-one, mono-a-mono in thousands, they're just going to do whatever that outcome is, it's actually kind of similar to salvation. There's one battle. Sin and death, Jesus Christ. He wins, we all benefit for all time. So it's actually like not that far off. Did you get one bit? Thanks. In Deuteronomy 8, it says this. It says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart. You walk around the desert for 40 years so God could say, hey, listen, we got to deal with some stuff in your heart because if that stuff in your heart is not dealt with the way I want to do it, you will not be able to enjoy that land. In fact, not only will you not enjoy it, you're going to get kicked out of it. So we have prayer requests and we have things we're asking God for, we want him to do. It's very much a reality that he needs to do the preparation work in us so we can better receive and hold on to and enjoy what he already wanted to give us. It says, He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so God, we take this bread, we take it, and we realize and we acknowledge that we do not live on bread alone, but from your word as well. So we take and we eat. And God, we thank you for your blood that you poured out for us, that this is victorious, Father. It's victorious, Lord. We trust the work that you're doing in our lives. We trust your intentions, Lord. 
we know, Father, anything that comes our way has been filtered through your loving hands. And Father, the evils that are around us, the difficulties, the trials, we're all going through things all the time. always happens. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would continue to do the needed work in our lives to bring our faith level to where it needs to be. And in humility, may we receive that. And I thank you, Holy Spirit, for comforting us and guiding us and giving us strength along the way. Only possible, Jesus, through your blood, so we take and we drink. All right, let's stand and we're going to pray. All right, so we all have it. We all got stuff we're going through. We all got situations and people that are taunting, that are um, degrading the work of the Lord in our lives, that is just taking shots at it. It could be even just our own flesh. There's just things, right? that are just taking shots at, looking to just erode the work of God in our lives, in our lives and around our lives. And I just want to pray that that doesn't have much room or much space. Pray that we would still engage. And we don't have, like have giants. Like we're not running out into a field after church and going to go fight some 12-foot tall person. It's just not the way it works now. But we do get medical reports Right? We do get bad news. We do have people take advantage of us. We do get put into situations that are overwhelming. And so these are the types of things like that we battle with. And this is like hopefully like we would choose to engage and let the Lord do whatever work he wants to do. So Father, I just pray for myself and for our church family an extra measure of trust in you to allow certain things into our lives. And I pray, Father, for a boldness, a spirit of boldness to fall on our church family. And I pray, like we're going to read next week, just about a a hope-filled confidence in you, Father, from David. That's how we're called to respond. Just run out to battle, Lord. And much of our battle happens in prayer. And so I pray that we wouldn't shy away, that we would stay on the sidelines. Pray for just a renewed sense to engage, to trust in you, Holy Spirit, to do supernatural things, to ask you to do supernatural things. Beating a Goliath is supernatural. I pray that we would rely on you, stay close to your heart, and see a situation for what it is instead of what we think it is. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, guys.